0: And welcome to National Treasure Hunt, the podcast where the secret lies not only with Charlotte, but also with your co-hosts. I'm Aubrey. And I'm Emily. And we are bringing you a very special interview today. Honestly, this is going to be so great for everyone involved.
1: It's like so interesting.
0: <laughs> yeah, it is so interesting. You know how, actually, the best way to set this up, I think, is, um have you ever heard of, like, the six degrees of separation rule? Yeah. So, like, you can, you can, like, connect yourself to any other person in the world by, like, going, like, saying, I know this person, and they know this person, they know that person. Like, eventually, by six degrees, you get to the person in question. Um, it's funny. We shattered the six degrees of separation rule when it comes to National Treasure cast and crew three years ago yeah (laughs) but I don't know we've always been like one degree of separation from Nicolas Cage at this point this is like 0.1 degree
1: oh this is as close as we've gotten
0: (laughs) (laughs) okay so we are going to be speaking with the one and only Marco Curis today we will tell you who he is and how he relates to Nicolas Cage in just a moment but before that little business to get out of the way
1: Yes, you can find us on Twitter and Instagram at T. Hunt Podcast. You can find out uh, basically everything else there is to know about us, aside from our bathroom schedules, on nthuntpodcast.com. You can order our book, National Treasure Hunt, One Step Short of Crazy, at tuckerdspress.com. And if you want to be super cool, you can go ahead and join our Patreon at patreon.com slash nthuntpodcast, where we have three character-based tiers. Um, Basically, what you do there is you can help to support us financially with the podcast for just a small amount of money. And in return, we give you even more exclusive content than you're already getting in our normal feed.
0: Yeah. So we have, we're available in a lot of types of media these days. You know who else is uh, working in a lot of types of media these days? Hmm. Marco Kiris. This is true. <laughs> so we've been following Marco's story um, on social media, especially his Instagram, for the past three plus years now. Um, and he's going to tell you all about his career in just a moment. Long story short, what you need to know going into this episode, Marco served as Nicolas Cage's stand-in from 1994 to 2005. Now, we will let Marco explain to you exactly what that means and entails, um, but that's like a long time, you guys. And so we could easily talk to him about, I don't know, how many movies did Cage do between those years? Probably 8,000?
1: 3,000 minimum.
0: Minimum. So we can can ask about any of those, but no, we are going to focus on Marco's time, specifically on the set of National Treasure. Um, There's going to be so much here for you guys to dive into, just another level deeper into the National Treasure fandom. What are you going to get from this episode? So much. Uh, A couple highlights. Of course, you're gonna learn how Marco landed the role of Nicolas Cage's stand-in. And not just any stand-in, a traveling stand-in, which it turns out is a pretty unusual role to land.
1: Yeah, and um after landing that role, you're gonna learn about all of the special not only like just general locations, but like parties and stuff that he got to go to because he was Nick Cage's stand-in and like knew Nick Cage.
0: And, I don't know, one of the more interesting things, in my opinion, you're going to learn about Marco's onset relationship with the likes of not only Nick Cage, but John Turtletob, Diane Kruger, Justin Bartha, and more. So that is what you have to look forward to in this episode. All that and more, as we like to say. So what do you think, Em? Is it time to dive in? Let's do it! Please join us in welcoming Marco Kiris to National Treasure Hunt. He is the man who spent a decade literally standing in the shadows of Nicolas Cage, including during Cage's first foray into the National Treasure franchise. Marco Kiris, welcome to National Treasure Hunt.
2: Thank you. Thank you. Well, you've hunted me down and I was a fool to not respond earlier, but here I am
0: here we are we're so excited to chat with you today and just to get us started since i'm hoping that many of our listeners you know this is their first introduction to you and your work so can you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you came to be nicholas cage's stand-in
2: yeah i mean it's uh your typical long you know hollywood kind of fantasy silly story um I was your typical failed wannabe actor in L.A. Um, the typical waiter thing, I didn't really take it much seriously. And I kind of dabbled in, got a couple of parts here and there, this and that. One thing led to the next. I decided to wrap it all up and I went back home, which is Toronto, Canada. So I went back home and it was during the 90s recession. And I got a part-time job as a waiter because um, that's what I was doing when I was in L.A. And things were pretty financially dire and I signed up with uh, an extras agency, kind of like a central casting of um, in Toronto. There were many agencies, and I just thought I'll make some extra money because I was also in the actor union here as as I was sag after in the States, I was actor here. I had my green card in the States, but I decided to give it all up and come back to Canada. So I signed up and I thought I needed a little extra money and being in the union to make a little bit of extra money, I got some extra gigs here and there between waiterships. And uh, lo and behold, there was a, a, an audition to be Nicolas Cage's standing in uh, Niagara-on-the-Lake, which is just outside of Niagara Falls, which is about a two-hour drive from Toronto. And uh, at the time, I was living in a tiny basement, one-room, you know, stove, oven, cooker, thingy, room, and uh, no car and no money, and um, barely making my rent of 400 bucks a month. So I was pretty broke. And uh, but I had the same spirit that I have today. And um, so I went for this audition, but I I couldn't get there. So they had to bring in another guy to drive me to the audition two hours away. And um, so after my waiter shift, I went with that guy. That guy was going to go in and stand in for Dana Carvey on this film called Trapped in Paradise. It was the middle of the winter. It was January, you know, minus 117 degrees outside and Arctic winds to boot. And so there we go together. Never met this kid before. He was part of the agency. He and I just kind of tramped around, went to the thing. And both of us got the job. Um, as Dana Carvey's guy and me as Nate Cage's guy, uh, I'd never done it before. He had a lot of experience. So he was going to help me through the days. And the AD was pretty kind of Gestapo-ish. And I wasn't really used to that. But they said you just got to like follow the orders. And, uh, and they just said kind of like, look and see what he does and just do this and I just I really didn't understand what I was getting into but I knew that the pay was good and I needed the money so I quit my job that weekend at the restaurant and uh I went in on that Monday which was a Friday and this was a Monday they needed an answer ASAP so over the weekend I had given up my waiter maitre d restaurant career which was going nowhere anyway and neither was my acting career so I you know, the, the luck has it that you have really nothing going on in your life and you took whatever job came up. And this one was a pretty decent paying job and uh, it was the most money I was ever going to make uh, in a week. So I, I took it not knowing what I was going to do. Uh, but as I got on there, um, I learned the ropes of what it was like to be on a film set, other than a two bit actor. You know, when you're on a show and you're like you got two, two days of, a, of an acting gig, it's all about you and those three lines that you're going to say. But this is like really working crew. And I didn't understand that because it was such a a blue collar world. Not that I wasn't always in in a blue collar life, but everybody was blue collar, except for that above the line crowd of the stars and the director and so forth. But you kind of felt this different energy. But uh, so I got the job and I started doing the job and learning the job and kind of like figuring out what to do as you work for a superstar. And he already was a star um, coming into it. Even though it was 1994, he was, at the time, I think he was making like a million bucks a picture, which was a big deal back then for an up and coming um, quirky kind of indie actor. Um, but he wasn't Coppola. And I guess his career was kind of like set up for him. Everybody kind of knew who he was, but it was John Lovitz, Dana Carvey and Nicolas Cage. So it was really kind of a, a wild kind of crazy stellar cast. And I was learning the ropes, and uh, within a month or so, maybe it was six weeks—I can't remember—I um, get a—I I get a, a tap on the shoulder from his assistant, saying that uh, Mr. Cage would like to have you in his trailer, have a conversation with you. I became a little cocky during this filming time because I kind of like, kind of took the took on the the role of I'm gonna kind of do it and kind of mark myself and kind of tell Nick where to go and this and that and how the marks are because. I felt like there was a disconnect between the conversations of the camera guy and the director and so forth. So I just kind of like, you know what, I'm going to be the middleman and tell them what to do. And I was told to not do that because I would get fired. So I thought I'm going into his trailer to get fired. And, uh, which is kind of like, okay, because I was freezing cold and I had pretty much pneumonia at the time. And, uh, he went in there when I went in there and he says, we thought you're the greatest things in sliced bread while I was on set and I thought, wow, like, what do you mean by that? Like he says, you're the best standing I've ever seen in my life. You pay attention to you. You take care of the things that need to be taken care of. You know, your lenses, you know, your angles, you know, this and that. It's not that I knew is that I was learning and I was actually paying attention because I needed the paycheck. I didn't know that he would kind of praise me the way he did. And you talk about a good guy. I didn't know him from anything. And this guy brings me in to the trailer. Here we are in Canada. And he did all his research, which he does all the time on everything, all his characters. And I was a character and that he knew that I had a green card and lived in L.A. and could be manageable to get back to L.A. and be his traveling stand in. So he asked me to be his traveling stand in right then and there. And I kind of fumbled over everything, not knowing what I was going to do in life. And I said, sure, I'll do it. And because I had nothing else to do in life, I just kind of took the job and I didn't know where it was gonna lead, I was certainly gonna learn about some filmmaking what it'd be like on the set. So that kind of like was the beginning of everything and it all happened up here in Canada, if you can believe it. And you know, I did photo doubling shots, I did walking shots, blocking shots, driving shots. I did all that stuff as him in character. And I think he was very impressed. The director was impressed. Um, they got away with somebody doing shots for cheap and, uh, and it worked, because I kind of studied his character. I studied what he did, how he worked. I never took my eyes off of the guy. And uh, he kept looking at me as well during that time. But he was sizing me up like, hmm, is this guy good enough or not? And I was. And uh, and then that kind of like started off this this kind of working friendship relationship.
0: That is an incredible story i can't even imagine like that it sounds like something made up it's so it's so wild right like that's incredible
1: (laughs) it does oh my goodness um so because you've you've kind of thrown in a couple little hints into the world of what it means to be a stand-in but for Aubrey and I as well as any of our listeners uh would you be able to explain the job of a stand-in like what are some kind of tangible examples of what your role would be on set I know you said you did some like car shots and some other stuff like that
2: yeah well those aren't really um uh, you're not really required to do that stuff. That was that was extra stuff that I was doing. But as a stand-in, you're basically hired to be, if you are the likeliness of the character you're standing in for. So if you resemble your actor, you have to have it. the weight, the height, the hair color, the bone structure, very similar to, and obviously you can see that there's a certain resemblance. As long as there's a likeliness to the character, your hair color has to be the same color. Uh, facial tones should be the same color, height body so my shoulders and his shoulders if i'm a little off i would wear padded shoulders just because he's very broad um so that's how you get the job to begin with so you have to walk in there and physically be that part secondly you have to be in the unions so if you're in the states you've got to be a sag after member you cannot work in the position of a standard if you're not a sag after member and the candidate would be an actor member you will you can't have a non-union person working in a union field so, uh, and I was a union in both countries and I was a legal resident of both countries. And thirdly, you have to really pay attention and basically a stand-in is there to stand in to, to um, light um, to light the character in the likeliness and the movement and motions of the actor that you're working for. So if he's walking through the woods in a certain way, in a certain, uh, with a certain motion, and a certain attitude, at a certain speed, you have to capture all of that. So the camera follows you during these rehearsals, and because cl- you do big wide shots and you do close-up shots, so if you're off-centered, if if he's walking at like, you know, at a fast pace and you're at a slow pace, the camera is confused. Mm-hmm. So you're not really doing any service to the camera department mm-hmm. at that point. So you really have to be in control of yourself to mm-hmm. understand what the actor's doing. So if he's sitting down the way I'm sitting down, and he's leaning back like this, you're going to be doing the same thing. You can't be doing this because now you're out of focus. So if he's doing this and and you think that it's okay to do this, well, you've just you've obviously not paid attention. So it's whatever he does, you're mimicking him in character, and uh, and his likeness, and you have to have the physical shape, body type, and hair, and so forth. And you also have to work what they call color cover. So if he's wearing something similar to this, you have to wear something similar to that. It doesn't have to be the exact same thing unless you're photodoubling. And if you're photo doubling, which I did in every movie, then you have to wear the exact same outfit because they could use your hand to pick up a pen. And all they're focusing on is a pen, for example, a national treasure. And you write something and it'd be my hand and not his hand, for example, because it takes hours to set these shots up. And there's no need to have him there when you can do it um that is
0: that is so interesting and I I suspect I know the answer to this but for clarity's sake is it like normal for an actor to have a single traveling stand-in or is it typical that like they have a different one at any location they might go to Were were you like a unicorn
2: yeah (laughs) unicorns there's like 10 unicorns in Hollywood Mm -hmm so at, at the time and there may still be like 10 there's jeff bridges john travolta you know there's a few guys who have their their people the tom hanks the eddie murphy's and so forth but there's only literally maybe a handful to 10 and that includes the females as well it's about 10 women who have their own personal people because they're big enough to put them on a contract and on a traveling entourage and you know they're kind of cared for through the studio system but it's it's you know, it's because of the star, and they have a certain comfort zone with how they work and how they show up on set. Again, you have to be clean, sober. You have to have a good driving record. You can't have um, a criminal record. You can't have a DUI on your record. I mean, you can't have any of that because you're always subject to driving a car in a movie. Not stunt driving, but regular driving from, you know, 10, 20 miles an hour. So all that stuff is part of that job, and you can do off-camera dialogue for certain actors um as well uh it's just do some rehearsal lines with with other actors as well like it kind of like plays into it they have to have your trust they have to know that you'll be up at 3 30 in the morning and on set at 5 a.m with your you know your little frappy happy cappy mappy and uh and you're not missing that beat 5 a.m means 5 a.m it doesn't mean 505 a.m and you really have to be diligent and i was that guy so there are certain people that really take it seriously but are still lighthearted on the set but punctuality is is uh is a must like there's no room for error with punctuality mm-hmm. you're late more than once like five minutes you're fired they don't care how good you are you are literally fired
0: wow there's no pressure
2: <laughs> and, and there was enormous amount of pressure because you know it's hard to go to bed at like nine o'clock and get up at 3 30 in the morning and three in the morning and you know, shave and feel right and feel like you, you know, you've read the script, you've read the signs, you know where you're going to be filming. You could be sitting around for hours. It's freezing outside. It could be raining, but you got to be there because the other guys are there, the director's there, the cinematographer's there, and you got to be part of that team. Even though you may not be physically fit or ill, you're a part of it because you're representing the star. Because those early morning, the beginning of the day shots are all done with the stand-in. They go through all the stuff and the lenses and they walk through the scenes with the stand-in. Unless it's a very complicated scene that involves a lot of dialogue between two actors, then they'll bring in the actors in their regular coats without their makeup on and they'll rehearse them. They'll kind of block it out and then they send it to the makeup trailer for three, four, five hours. And then the stand-in takes over because you're there watching it from the get-go. But if it's a simple scene of him walking down the block, uh, for example, in Philadelphia, crossing the street, you don't need a case there to do that. You can block it with me. And then you set up all the extras. You set up the cars with the with the stunt guys and everybody else. It could take eight hours. And then it comes on set at like 2 p.m. when it's all ready to go. Because it's it's not real dialogue heavy. It's just kind of like movement. Right. And it would be a waste of his time and where he can just work on his, on his craft.
0: Right, right. Well, so you obviously worked a lot with Nicolas Cage um you know he is he was and is always working so a lot of movies happen in the span of time that you're working with him um National Treasure ends up popping up near the end of your tenure in this position I believe um and we are, of course, going to focus on that movie, our favorite film, today. So I wanted to ask you, at, again, at this point, you had read tons of scripts. You had been on tons of sets. When you first get your hands on the script for National Treasure, what is your reaction? Were you interested in the story? Were you surprised that Cage accepted the role? Was, did it seem like a natural fit for him? What was your impression as the expert?
2: As the expert, um, I don't know, when you get an expert on, let me know. But as the non-expert, I would say, I read the script. I actually love the script. I love the story. I love that whole all-American storyline. You can see that it was already gonna be, it was, first of all, it was really well-written. It had a real commercial venue, in my opinion. I could see this being a big hit and going to a number two and number three and so forth. Um, And I thought Nick Cage at the time was perfect for it. Mm -hmm. And I'm not trying to say that, but I thought that this is right up his alley for right now. Um, Because he picks and chooses things that are completely different each time. It's like, it's like rolling the dice with him. Like you read something like what's this before? We shot The Weatherman just prior to that. The Weatherman is a 1000 light years away from National Treasure. And we we actually blended into doing National Treasure. Like it was like a completely different character. Then we did Lord of War. So a, another completely different character. So this guy picks and chooses things as he sees fit as, as in character development. And uh, whether it's a big hit or not a big hit, he's gonna do it because he likes the story and he likes the character. So I think this was a great fit for him as I thought Lord of War was, as I thought The Weatherman was personally. And um, and I thought it was well executed all the way around. I knew it was gonna be a good film, but when I, when I read the script, it terrified me with all the action and the amount of places we were gonna travel. I'm not a physical person, so it's hard for me to get that physical and go up these mountains. And I'm just thinking, how are we ever gonna to get to these positions? And what am I gonna do? Like, I'm just some little flimsy flaker. Like, how am I ever gonna to get to this position? So I was really dependent on the stunt guy heavily uh for him to kind of like you know kind of tag teaming and kind of like take over a bunch of stuff luckily he did and i thought this is going to be like a lot of shit like there's a we did it in five states five months of work in five states from the winter to the summer think about the amount of change of clothing and the amount of different crew we had in all these states it was uh i was a traveling stand-in so i had to teach everybody all the other new ins in every location of how to be a stand-in because most people didn't have the experience so i had to train the guys and the girls outside of the la based ones everybody else was kind of like a newbie a really freshie and uh, i was a seasoned guy who was expected to teach them how to perform on uh, on a film set and not kind of attack the actors
1: Wow, I literally had not considered that you, like, would have had to be in that role for the the stand-ins in the other places that you went to. That's And it's amazing that you had worked kind of in the industry for so long that you were able to do that, and, like, I'm sure that was immensely helpful to everyone involved.
2: It was, I I will say that the cinematographer and the first AD was very generous uh, with me, uh, really thanked me for it. But we also knew that you had to work as a team. These stand-ins were not professionals. They were in states where they they were not unionized. We were in different places. Uh, There were a lot of very green stand-ins who just didn't understand the business. And they were coming in only for like a week or three days or five days uh, for certain characters. And nobody was, kind of ahead of anybody so I had to take charge and so they said you need to teach these people what to do they need to stand here watch the actors do the thing not fumble up they can't go to the bathroom they need to watch this they need to mimic it so I teach each time I was teaching all kinds of stand. in addition to working for Cage so it was it was a lot of work but it's always teamwork in the film business and you even though I'm kind of a diva you can't be a diva in that respect you really have to really work together because if they fuck up you look bad because they don't know where the other actors are standing and if you're standing in the right spot and they're like in mars they're like like what's going on we're disconnected so you need to bring them into your level and kind of bring them under your under under your guidance until they kind of understand what's going on and then you can work together because if you work together and you've got these like insane scenes with thousands of extras as we did like at the Library of Congress and a lot of these places in D.C., you're looking at so many people. And if your stand-ins are disconnected, like they really need to be the actors that that you're mimicking. So you really have to work with them. And, uh, and they were all good people. They just didn't know the business. But that also became my job in certain films. So not in every film. If we're LA-based films, you hire professional stand-ins. But if you're in these other states that are not so, they're loosey-goosey, you really got to like, you know, Real the in. Okay. Well yeah. that
1: very generous of you and very, very thoughtful of you. Um so speaking of thoughtful, and once again you you alluded to this so well um ah. already, we we know that Nicolas Cage, right, is a thoughtful and intellectual person. You have literally told us that already. Mm-hmm. Um, and that feels very similar to the character of Ben Gates um so having you know spent time being a stand-in for nate cage playing ben gates how would you compare the two like are they as similar as say like aubrey and i might imagine them to be
2: um i i don't think they're that similar but i do think that cage has the thirst of, uh, of ben gates uh the thirst of of knowledge the thirst of history the thirst of uh of people um of life of cultures uh i would say even much more than ben gates i i see this guy as he wants to learn everything and he absorbs everything meaning cage so um in, in the sense of do they have a the thirst and want to really kind of like find that treasure yeah nick cage has always been that person i would say um and he's always digging. Like he will never stop digging ever. That's why he works so much. Um, he really loves all that stuff, and I think that Ben Gates is generally interested in in the treasure and and other subjects as well, and and history and so forth. And Nick Cage is definitely that person, a hundred percent, but much more intense and and a little more odd.
0: I love that. I, I mean, that that makes sense. We we often talk about how Ben Gates feels like one of Nicolas Cage's more subdued roles. Um, but in some ways, that's why it works so well, I, I think, because he brings this really subtle passion and obsessiveness to the role that honestly feels so self-consistent that it really works. We try to play the game sometimes on National Treasure Hunt where it's like, who else could have played this role? And we have a really hard time answering that question. Um but that's just us. Maybe we're a little, a little too in the weeds ourselves.
2: <laughs> I think of somebody like maybe George Clooney.
0: Okay. That's he a good could,
2: one. Yeah. I mean, he could play it. He's got that, he's got that interest and, 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 and thirst. He doesn't have the intensity. I think that Cage has, but uh, I think that, you know, someone like him or other, other characters.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's a great point. Now from a third party perspective, um, based on either your observations of Cage or how you actually inter interacted with him on the National Treasure set, can you tell us anything about how he prepared for the role of Ben Gates or got into the mindset of the character? You mentioned that he does research into roles, so I kind of wonder what he might have done for this one. Or even if and even if you don't have a sense of that specificity, was his preparation similar or different from preparations for other roles any any light you can shed on kind of that big picture
2: you know I'd love to shed a lot of light on it but he comes in to every film so prepared you would you would never know that he he doesn't sit there and reread the lines in the script then on the set and get frazzled like most actors do and I did work with a lot of actors with Cage who were you know, constantly looking through their scripts and looking through things and fumbling through lines. The cage walks through it, memorizes the entire page and doesn't even miss a beat. And I'm not exaggerating. So I don't have any insight to that because I have never seen him prepare. He prepares everything off camera, in his trailer, at his home, does his own research. He's He's a research junkie. Like he knows everything and more and things that the director has never thought of. He's already thought of. He's that guy who'll bring everything to the table, discusses with the director. Can he add much more than what the director even wants? And that's how they kind of work it. Whether they tone it down or add more, that's between them. But he always comes in with a full set of ideas, but he's a thousand percent prepared. If they say, okay, Nick, you need a rehearsal. He, he'll he look at the monitor. and He's already seen the rehearsal thing. He says, no, let's shoot it. And he will shoot it like that without a rehearsal. Everything and just do it, and I mean all the time. So no, I don't have anything that I've ever seen. He doesn't sit there and mumble through the words and try to memorize things and get. He's just like he'll sit back like this, watch the things. He looks at She's like, okay, we're ready for for uh, 18. Walks in there, does his thing. Cut. Great. Let's shoot it from that angle. Great. That's it. So I don't see the preparation.
1: Wow, that's, that's so interesting.
0: Impressive, I would say.
2: Very <laughs> impressive. Well, the director always impressed. Everybody's impressed that he doesn't miss that beat because time is money. And I think he understands that very well. And when he walks on that set, he knows that everybody's already been working for hours and they need to get that shot. And it may start to rain and we're outside and people are tired and they have 300 extras. So he's looking at his sheet and fumbling through the script. He's still prepared and disrespecting the hundreds of people who are on that film set, all because he couldn't remember his lines. So he's never done that. And I will say that he's ridiculously respectful of everybody, whether you are the, the, the bus boy of the set or the, the director, he treats everybody the same and looks them in the eye and addresses them by name. It's really weird that he doesn't forget anything. So he does walk in that way. And I studied him doing that. And I thought, wow, I'm learning so much about this because I was learning about myself and character and trying to figure out my life. You know, remember, this was a job that I didn't know what I was doing. And he taught me all this stuff without telling me anything, just the integrity, just watching him. It's like he went up and he says, hey, Joe, hey, thing. Hey, guys, how are you? Blah, blah, blah. Let's do it. Are you all set? Ready. And he just dives into it. So that to me is very respectful of everybody around him. Remember, you've got maybe three dozen stunt guys hanging out on the clock making a lot of money. Cars are ready to roll. There are cops holding back traffic. If you're not doing your thing, then you're holding back the entire film set. So so he comes in and says, let's shoot it and get on. Wow. That that
1: is that's just such a nice thing, I think, to hear. And the fact that you were able to To kind of learn that, like you said, from him Um. is really nice. It sounds like, you know, you witness him doing that, like you said, on basically all of the sets that you were on with him. So I was wondering, how was your experience personally on the National Treasure set, aside from like seeing Nick Cage, you know, be this very kind person who just knew his stuff. How is that similar to or different from some of the other films that you worked on, either with or without Nick Cage?
2: Well, all films are super different. I'm going I'm to say the formula is the same. Uh, the hours are basically the same, usually 12 hours, maybe a little more more 12 to 14 hours a day you have your half an hour lunch you know you get your little bathroom break in and out that kind of they're all kind of like the formulas are the same it's like a big expensive factory uh but the dynamics are all different because the locations are different the scripts are different some are light some are heavy some are action the directors are all vastly different everybody works in a different fashion when anybody comes on these film sets like me or anyone else of the crew we have to pay attention to the director to the director and the creative producers how these guys are kind of like funneling this 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 film it's their film we're just on it so we have to adjust our attitudes our minds our bodies to whatever we're shooting so that's kind of like how you you look at every film because again we did the weatherman prior did lord of war after that and it was so different and you have to work with whatever you're dealing with including the elements so from my personal experience on Share, I actually had fun on it for the most part because it was very lighthearted and it was like Americana history kind of fun stuff. Though I did have, you know, in and out of like tidbits, I hated being in the cold when we were going for the Charlotte and digging. And we were up in Utah, like 9,000 feet up and my ears were popping and I had endless headaches and it was winter and I was freezing and I hate the cold. And we're all in those parkas and you know, doing that. So I did a lot of photo doubling of digging the snow. John Turtletop hated the way I was doing it on camera. So he pushed me aside and he comes in and he does, he says, This is how you do it, Marco. And I felt so bad because you know, there was so little light in the winter there on top of the mountain. And the light goes away by like four PM. And if you make one mistake according to his vision, his direction, like it's you're, 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 we've wasted six minutes and six minutes in that capacity is like six hours to them. So I understood that, but sometimes I didn't understand the angle because I'm in the shot. And if, if I'm blocking you know, the letters and stuff without knowing it, you, know, you had to keep moving it, but then you had to redress the snow. So there's a lot going on at, cause you can't move the camera. And now you already set the camera, you've set the lighting. So you can't fuck it up. So there was a lot of pressure that happened a lot. And uh, I think he got pissed off at me a few times back and forth, especially with the keyboard stuff on the computers, because I had never owned a computer and I didn't know anything about it. I remember him coming to me on, on one scene and I was supposed to pretend, you know, you're doing the computer and typing in whatever the words were. And I didn't know what I was doing. And I was just kind of typing away. And he says, Marco, we see your fingers. He says, you don't know what you're doing on a computer. Do you? I said, no. He says, you don't have a computer. Do you? I said, no. He's like, you don't own a computer? I said, no, I don't know what to do with a computer. So, and so he says, it shows. He says, just stand there. <laughs> and I didn't do anymore because it bothered him that I didn't know how to type on a computer. <laughs> and I thought that was really funny. And I was just doing the, the standing and stuff. You know, I wasn't doing any photo doubling. But uh, Nick came in and he knows how to use a computer and he did his thing. But I was just standing there just standing there just mocking it you know but I had never owned a computer so I just so that happened a lot so there was a little bit of like eh, you know we weren't in love with each other but we didn't dislike each other he just thought it was kind of a goomba guy and and maybe I was a little goomba-ish but uh you know those were kind of like small tidbits and and the traveling was just was kind of exhausting on the show but the locations were great once we got to the east coast of philly and to dc which i'd never been to north philly and uh in new york and uh and that was super exciting
0: that's awesome um so i was going to ask you about john turtletop eventually so i might as well um you know elaborate on that a bit now we've had the pleasure of interviewing him on the podcast as well he's a hilarious person and uh very sassy which we we appreciate um we thought it was really funny and we have fun sassy email exchanges with him to back it up um but i I was wondering if you found his directing style particularly uh different or similar to other directors you've worked with or you know we also know that Nick Cage and John Turtletop went to school together. They knew each other prior. And I was wondering if that affected the dynamic at all from your perspective.
2: Uh, I think it did. I think they were real buddy buddies. Uh, I don't think Turtletop was that into me. Uh, Again, I'll I'll say that. But uh, I don't, he he never disliked me, but he just didn't, I don't think he thought it was right for it, for the job. But Cage was adamant that I was there no matter what. And uh, because he knew that I was going to show up and do the job as best as I could. And and I did, but uh, Turtle Tob was an all. He was a hands-on everything. He was very intimidating. First of all, he's huge. He's like six foot five, huge. He's like Herman Munster big, and he's very intimidating. Like Cage is intimidating from an actor's point of view. When you walk in a room and Cage is there, and everybody will tell you the same thing. He has an aura of Elvis Presley. Everybody kind of like stops and stares at Cage when he walks in the room. You can't deny his, his visual quality on set, Any Cage. Turtle Tob is overbearing like a bear. He is enormous and his presence and his voice and he's loud as you know, and he's witty and he's smart and he's comical and he's a no bullshit kind of dude. And he's hands on everything, everything from set dressing to the candle lighting, to a torch thing, to the computer, to touch the shift key versus the caps lock key to every little tiny detail he directed. He is not the kind of guy who's going to sit there and let, oh, let the other guys do it. He was there for every tiny little thing. This guy micromanaged everything. From how he wanted the characters to look, to move, to to stand, to walk. He was on it. He was, I don't know how he wasn't exhausted. I was so tired. And this guy, you know, because they, they first of all, they come in early because they do their thing early. And then they, they go to the dailies after filming. So they're watching what they already shot. So these guys are, are 15, 17 hours a day kind of guys every day, this was five months. This guy was there the entire time, like present. Like he didn't just show up and direct and say, okay, great, looks good, action. Then there are some directors who are that way. This guy was hands-on with everything. It didn't matter if you were like a background guy or a stunt guy, why is this guy running to me? Like, but, that, what is like, but move that guy over, he's just acting like he will pinpoint everything. Because I would be behind the monitor watching to see if Keijo changes actions. And I would listen to Turtletop be so engaged with everything i was like holy fuck he doesn't miss a beat so he intimidated me so if i fucked up or i made a little mistake he called me out on it wow he was he was on it and i think that's why it was such a successful film he that was his baby and and the second one though i did not see it and i i did hear nothing but great things about it um this guy is completely hands-on not all directors are that hands-on and it's a big film for a director to be that hands-on. Usually they're on a smaller film. They're they're really into it. But this was a massive blockbuster Disney production. Jerry Bruckheimer thing. This guy was like, he owned the movie. That's the way I saw Turtle Talk.
1: Yeah, no, that that makes like a lot of sense, I feel like, from what Aubrey and I know about him and from having spoken to him and interviewed him and stuff, it, it feels very accurate so it's really cool to to know that like we got kind of got the right impression um from that but you you mentioned that you know the the scale of the movie was was so so large right so obviously there are a ton of other people on set not just the extras but the other you know like main cast members so you're interacting with Nick Cage very regularly, right, on the set of National Treasure. But did you get the chance to interact with any of the other actors on the set? And what do you remember from those interactions, if, if anything?
2: I remember some things. There were always tidbits. Like, they were... The actors were very much together they were kind of like very playful together because it was a playful film so they were more in their little fun little bubble and i was always kind of like in and out of a bunch of stuff doing some off-camera dialogue as well i, I did also with diane kruger who was very very nice about that stuff um you know when when there are just certain times where just things have to happen and they're like you need to do the off-camera dialogue because so, you know, Nick is not here for whatever the reason is, they misscheduled something. Sure, no problem. And I suck at it. And of course they cut that out, uh, but they don't cut out her close-up. So you'll see me like walking around doing a thing and it's all about her. So it's on her closeups and stuff. But that has happened often in certain films for different reasons. But I I did, I interacted with, uh, with uh, Justin uh, here and there. He's very comical. Talk about a witty actor. He's really fucking smart, that kid. So obviously he's, he's gone on to like, you know, work a lot since then. And that was one of his, that was his biggest break, but he was really good. And, and he, he didn't miss a beat either. Him and Cage had a great dynamic together. And I interacted a lot with John Voigt to my surprise. I had a, a very nice time with him. He was very sweet. I did run lines with him off camera on several occasions. Um, and he was really just, he was like apple pie you know, to me, it was like just a sweetheart of a guy. Uh bizarrely enough, I'd worked with his daughter, Angelina um, Jolie, on Gone in Sixty Seconds. So um and I brought that to his attention and and I just thought that was kind of cute. And I thought, wow, what are the chances of I'd work on two films and it was these two mega stars, father and daughter. But uh yeah, and and Sean Bean was funny offset. Uh we interacted a lot and joked around a lot. Um with him, especially in the Liberty Bell when, I think you may have seen the blooper of it when he hit his head and fell. Was it him no, or was it the other actor who fell when we were in the uh, Liberty Bell in Philly? I can't remember. And it was just- you thinking
0: of David Diane Fisher by any chance?
2: Well, maybe that's it, the, the bald headed- uh, yeah. The- yeah. Yeah, sorry, that was him, yeah. There were a lot of
1: hijinks that went on- uh,
0: <laughs>
2: We understood Up in that bell tower. <laughs> yeah, but we did have a good time. But Sean Bean was really fun on the set and and a couple of other supporting actors harvey keitel was really fun off the set um you know just kind of sitting around and 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 having little small chit chats it was very very you know very normal very basic
0: that's really uh really interesting to hear i think a lot of people look at national treasure from a year 2023 perspective and they think oh my gosh it's just all big names and it's true that that is the case by today's standards, but we often forget that Justin and Diane specifically were super new to the scene at this time. And they were, National Treasure was both of their big breaks, although Diane Kruger also had Troy, et but um it's it's always interesting to hear how how they react and interact on on a set that early on especially surrounded by so many big names we have heard really good things about harvey keitel um but you know still working on being able to chat with some of those actors at some point in the future um but but yeah i really glad to hear that you had such positive interactions with them it's encouraging from a fan perspective you know
2: yeah i actually did i and harvey cartel was just like a, a regular guy around the block he could have owned the corner 7-eleven kind of a store like he was just kind of like super humble like to me it was like oh there's harvey cartel and it's like hey how are you good how you doing hey good how you doing sit down yeah 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 and we were like and i was we were lighting up nick and and he had a stand of things I'm like no i'll sit in so he stood in for himself doing the church thing and then i'm just like sitting with him like can we just talk and it was like like nothing like he's your neighbor in brooklyn huh. so it was really kind of funny and that went on, on on several occasions
0: wow and did uh and so this might be me admitting that i'm not great with pop culture beyond national treasure but because uh nick cage worked with ed harris obviously a national treasure too but he also worked on is it the rock that they worked together yeah so did you meet Ed Harris in, in that film context?
2: Oh, yeah. Yeah. And actually, Ed Harris was ridiculously generous and, and nice to me and invited me to his trailer. We had a coffee together. Wow. Uh, he was really nice. This was uh, in San Francisco and then back in L.A. And he was just he was intrigued that Nick Cage had his personal stand-in. And after our conversations, he decided to hire a personal stand-in. So no I think it was really interesting. you know, I'd only done four or five films with Cage up until that point, but he saw the dynamic. he saw how well I worked on that set, how difficult the movie set was and what you have to endure and knowing that you're you know representing this this big superstar on on the rock. And so he thought it was you know good to also do that in which he did. Mm-hmm. But ed Harris was just again, he's like your neighbor down the block. You would never know it. I had dinner with him after that another time in toronto as well and it was just like he's just that guy
0: that's cool that's really cool to hear okay so you had to know i'm sure you get asked some variety of this question all the time i want to know if you have any like fun or little known behind the scenes stories or memories from national treasure filming whether like on location or on set or even after hours that you'd be willing to share with us spilling any tea here today
2: well there are a lot of stories because we were in so many states um, yeah. a lot of stories are, are kind of like you know miserable and stuff like going up to I was miserable when we were going up to the Charlotte way up in the Alaska thingy because mm-hmm. we were seeing some lodge and everybody everything was booked because it was ski season and so we had to stay in these little tiny ski lodges very motel six-ish but it was like a 45 minute to an hour drive to get to the base camp of this like literally i took photographs of just like snow and base camp and you had to go up these hills around and around and around it was always snowing cold just like in the movies and it was freezing and you you you, you barely slept you get up there And then from there, you had to take a bobcat all the way to the top of where the actual set was, where the Charlotte was, where we were filming. And that was, you know, an adventure because you could only go up one road and stuff because they didn't want all the snow to be, um, you know, the tracks and stuff. So they, because then they had to film a bunch of scenes with the bobcats. So there was also transportation as well as it was a scene. So that was like, first of all, it was exhausting. Secondly, finding a bathroom out there was also a challenge. To go in and have lunch and have a bite to eat, which we never really did. They just kind of brought sandwiches for us because we didn't have time to eat while we were there uh during that entire segment of the of the shoot. So those were a little rough. I didn't know how we were all gonna get through it all. But by the time you got back to, to the lodge and so forth, you know, you you wind down with a glass of wine or a whiskey and stuff and basically pass out by eight o'clock because there's nowhere to go, you're in the middle of nothing. That's one little story. There was a fun story. Uh, in DC, we were filming nights, and Cage was in his tuxedo, and they were going to do the stunt thing. They decided last minute because they had they were ahead of schedule that they wanted to shoot a stunt scene with our stunt guy Eddie, uh, with the fire with the, with the uh, with the truck. You know, where he'd be like wobbling back and forth. And we were in the middle of this location, and we had hair, makeup, wardrobe, and stuff. But everybody's just kind of like mobile. They are sitting with their knapsacks, and out of the blue, they're like, "You know what? Let's get that shot because the moon looks great." And blah blah blah. And then they said, "Eddie, we're going to shoot the scene." We were all ready in tuxedos. I had my tuxedo on too, um, except that Eddie, or stunt guy, didn't have tuxedo socks. He had white sweat socks, and he's going to be dangling, so it's going to look like you know, white socks on his tuxedo. And nobody had extra socks, none of the wardrobe team. And it was a 20 minute drive to get the base camp, to get the socks in, then we didn't have the, we didn't have time for the lighting. And then out of the corner of the blue, and he screams across the parking lot and he says, Marco, I'm like, yeah. He's like, do you have an extra pair of black socks? I said, of course I do, because I carry everything with me, because I'm the, the most prepared stand-in on the planet. So I have extra underwear, I have socks, I have sweater, I have scarves, I have toques, I have this, I have toothbrushes, toothpaste, bottles of water. So it's like, to me, I'm going camping because I'm standing in the middle of the streets and I'm not sure how cold they're gonna be. So I bring extra clothing in my own stuff in addition to the set clothing, just in case I'm cold. I have thermals. So they're like, you're kidding. You, why would you have an extra pair of tuxedo socks with you? I said, because I always have extra socks with me. I have them on the airplanes. And so they thought that it was the funniest thing that this guy just saved the day because I just saved that shot because they couldn't shoot it; they were never going to have enough time for the lighting. So funny enough, I come out, I give them the socks, and wardrobe stared at me and said, "You just saved us because they would have been killed because you know the, the director would have shot them." He said, "Like, what do you mean you don't have socks? You know, you don't have extra pair of socks. If you people, why does a stand-in have an extra pair of socks?" But uh, so I had my tuxedo socks just in case because they go really high up and they cover the cold, you know, around my my calves. And I just like to have that extra warmth. So I just had them in the bag in case I got cold. So I give him the socks for the same size and, he, and then they, they're off uh, running to do the scene. So I'll never forget it because we still talk about that scene. We still laugh about it. They're like, if anybody has extra anything, it would be you. And, uh, and I just, you know, I have extra powder, I have extra makeup with me, extra hair products. Like it's just, I come prepared. So it was, so that's, there's a, there's a cute story for you.
0: I love that. Um... Congratulations for saving the day and I'm so glad that your your contributions in that way remain recognized to this day and we are very happy to be able to share that story
2: with our really, listeners. Kevin to talk about that. I think you forgot.
0: I will. We will. <laughs> we Absolutely. will
1: and and we'll never watch that scene the same way again because whenever we see those black socks we will just be like Marco.
0: Yep. That
1: mm-hmm.
0: that was him. Yeah. 100%. 100%. So, you know, one quick question that just popped into my head, you know, you mentioned how you had not been to a lot of these cities before that you would then be filming in for National Treasure and the sort of historical Americana vibe to the film. Did you find yourself, you know, learning the history or becoming more intrigued by these locations or the historical places that you were visiting along the way? Or is this purely, you know, paycheck level for you? Or, or do you get into it? Do you get into the vibe?
2: I I do get into the vibe I mean especially I'm I'm an East Coast junkie so I love everything East Coast I love all the original 13 states and stuff so I don't know much about history I'm not from the states but I do love American history and I'm not a very learned person I I, you know I I hate to admit it but I never went to school so I've never studied I've never done computers and these are all new things for me. So uh, I was basically more of a street person uh, and, a, and a waiter at the end of the day. So learning these things just by chance, just by being there was, was really amazing to me. Like to be up at the, the Liberty Bell up at the tower, it's like, you know, you're at the I'm like, what? Hell, There's only been like 300 or 400 people in the entire world and blah, blah, blah. And you're one of them. They didn't let anybody up in that bell tower except for me. It was the only standing allowed. None of those actors had stand-ins there because there wasn't enough room. But Cage needed to stand in. So I was up there. So that's where you become really the privileged person. Because you work for the star, you get to go to the places where no one ever is allowed to go into. And I did a bunch of tours. So we went to see the Betsy Johnson house and, you know, a bunch of different things in Philly. I had a Philly cheesesteak. You know, I did, I did the usual kind of stuff, which I loved. I went to the museum, or the Rocky Museum, you know, blah, blah, blah. I did that whole stuff there but we also um because we work for cage and on the entourage we got to go to the white house on a tour i got to go twice and simply because i worked for cage and so they give you this like green light pass. like there's no they're just like would you like to go you're invited what do you mean you're invited you're invited to have a tour of the white house why because you're part of the entourage oh and he wasn't even there i was like wow so I went with a couple of people. We had a guided tour and blah, blah. I thought, what are the, and this was like post 9-11. So it still wasn't open to the public. And it was only open to certain special guests and special groups of some sort. And I got to go twice. And I thought, what are the chances in my lifetime I get to tour the White House with a tour guide simply because I'm part of this fanfare club that I'm in. So I thought that was really kind of cool. So there there were these perks that I I very much enjoyed, you know, Mm -hmm. and that extended through L.A., New York and everywhere else. So I really enjoyed that part of it. That's cool. um, Being on the East Coast.
0: That's amazing. It sounds like a really awesome experience. Um, And, you know, we love how these these films bring viewers to locations that they might not be able to experience in their lifetimes. And that's one of the reasons that we we so appreciate the effort that is put into filming on location wherever possible, because you really do even as a viewer get that appreciation, it's really cool to hear that you had that, a similar experience being there yourself. Um, Before we jump into our wrap up questions, so our fun speed round, and then our um, our, our really final question for you, I did wanna just ask if there's anything about your experience related to National Treasure or anything about Nicolas Cage and working with him that you would want to share that we haven't already asked you about. You know, one of the unknown unknowns we didn't get to ask you
2: about. I don't know. I think I've said it in a bunch of other podcasts, unknown, unknown. I will say that, you know, during that time, it was such a workaholic ambiance that I don't think I appreciated it as much as I do now. Looking back, it has been many years and I'm a lot older. Of course, my body doesn't function as well, but I, I don't I, I don't think I was as present. In the moment. As I am now reflecting it, and I think Cage was a thousand percent present and realizing that sometimes his entourage did not did not respect him as as much as he deserved to be respected.
1: Hmm. And
2: and and I do say that a lot today because I I do look at that that he kept his integrity from day one to the last day. And I will say I did not, and and neither did. A bunch of other people in our entourage for different reasons but he never changed it was like this the entire time and looking back it, it's like we kind of faltered and this man did not and I thought how did that happen that's how stable he was in addition to his stability his mind this guy is a pure genius that I didn't recognize until later on when I started to reflect a lot more and look back at what he had done and that but I did recognize that he was always kind always respectful to everybody and the most generous guy on earth like this guy gifted everybody he was Elvis he just everybody got gifts all the (laughs) time it was to the point of embarrassing and I don't mean just me all of us entourage crew people gifts 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 and he never boasted about it. He never bragged about it. He never, he wasn't even there when it happened. He was just given by other people. And you're just like, oh, oh, send a thank you card. You know, it was just, he has a list of things. They all get gifts. And I don't mean like a pen, I mean just stupid gifts. And it was all the time. Wow. In, on every film. And, and birthdays and Christmas, like all the time. It was to the point of like, how is this even possible? So I, I don't know if the world knows that, but he's a big giver to everybody around him. And he's a charity giver, which he doesn't talk about either. And, uh, and he helps out family members, which I do know. I'm not gonna elaborate, but he's that guy. And he never talks about it. I only hear about it from real valid sources. And it's like, that makes sense, but he'll never discuss it. He may not even admit it.
0: I am really glad that you're able to shed some light on that for us and for our listeners because I certainly didn't know that and so I suspect that if Emily and I didn't know that many others wouldn't as well so thank you for sharing that. Um, So as we begin wrapping up here, as you may know Marco we like to end all of our interviews with our national treasure hunt speed round challenge, which is a combination of some of our standard questions and some that are like specific for you, are you ready to play.
2: I'm ready to fail.
0: Oh my gosh. You cannot fail. There are no wrong answers. And there's even, no failing. Even we get a lot of people that are like, I'm taking so long to answer this. I'm ruining the speed round. Everyone does that. So even if that happens, that's okay. Okay. First question. If you could play the role of any character in National Treasure, who would you pick?
2: Greg Gates.
0: What was your, <laughs> What was your favorite <laughs> location or set from the movie?
2: Uh, the Liberty Bell
0: how many lemons is the appropriate number of lemons to keep in your refrigerator
2: I have no idea
0: <laughs> do you keep lemons in your refrigerator
2: do and I buy them in a bulk so I never count them
0: that's probably the most realistic answer we've ever gotten for this yeah question. so like more than three
2: yeah they, they come in a, in like a, a net like yeah a bed, yeah whatever that net is that's what's in there Okay.
0: (laughs) Probably like a pound, a pound of lemons. Um, (laughs) Okay, what is one word that you would use to describe the character Agent Sadusky? Quirky. Quirky, I like that. What was your favorite Nicolas Cage film set to work on? Face Off. And what was your favorite, or what is your favorite Nicolas Cage film overall? Face Off. Okay. And finally, I suspect I know the answer. It's kind of an unfair question, but for the record, Marco, National Treasure or National Treasure 2 Book of Secrets?
2: Oh, By default, it's National Treasure 1.
0: (laughs) Well, I just have to say that number one, (laughs) you passed the speed round with flying colors. You answered the questions faster than I think anyone who's ever been on our show before. So you've really mastered the speed round. And also, should you ever get around to watching national treasure too you'll have to let us know and come back on and tell us all your thoughts i would love to that would be super fun
1: okay so now that we have that like on the books um can you tell us and our listeners what you are up to today and how our listeners can learn more about your career
2: well, my career was a weird career because it was it became a stand-in career, and that came out of nowhere. So it a job became a career, and then it became this notoriety as this guy who worked for Cage Forever, and I had no idea that I was going to be that person because it never even dawned on me in a billion years. So um, since leaving that big entourage world, um, I dabbled in a lot of real estate. Um, to secure my future, which I did. And um, so I'm, I'm comfortable in a sense that I'm, I'm never seeking employment. Uh, so I'm very happy about that part of it. So I worked hard at getting to that point and, and that's all fine and dandy. And then I decided through many people through LA to um, pursue the story of that stand-in. So I did a short film a few years ago. It's actually in DC, uh, for the film festival, for the documentary thing uh, in 2019. And it was an award winning short film called Uncaged, a stand in story. And it was in 20 film festivals. It won a bunch of awards. And, uh, and then I went on tour with this whole thing. And I started a podcast, but I haven't really been pursuing it much. I started, we did a whole website thing and everything else, all about this cage wage world that I lived in. And everybody has told me, you got to write a book, you got to write a book. And of course, a lot of people wanted a salacious book about, you know, all kinds of nasty things that could happen. And I thought, I'm never going to do that. And people said, oh, you got to do it, blah, blah, blah. And I said, no. So I shut down a bunch of different people. And then I thought, you know what? Why don't you just tell the story the way it really was? Honest, real, and, and the thankfulness that you've become this person because of that. So I'm in the middle of it currently. And I'm also in the middle of doing the feature film version of my life story, pre and post uh, uh, Cage um, and a TV series. So I'm actually decided to dabble into all that stuff. And I thought, you know what? I'm too young to be tired. I'm not an actor because I suck at it. So let's not pretend. So I thought I can tell these stories and kind of branch off on things. And and I have now have a team with me that we're working together on these things. And so I go back and forth to L.A. a lot and I'll be there more often, sooner than later. So I'm working on those projects because they're fun and exciting. I did dabble in a bunch of restaurants and investments and real estate. So that kind of has kept me afloat for the next 20 years. So these are pet peeve projects that I want to develop and um, that I think will be interesting to the world. I don't know about how much money you're going to make from it. But it's definitely going to be interesting because the position is interesting. It's never been told before. Um, I think to be told on a on a film and in a book is a very interesting way of discussing the underserved positions of of uh, Hollywood uh, workers, uh, whether it be a, a hairdresser, a makeup artist, an extra, or you know now it'll be the stand-in. And and I want to discuss that and. and kind of shed light to really what it's like to be on these film sets and what it's like to work for a big star so that's what I'm doing I'm working on all these projects and I'm excited about it you know renovating my house and that kind of stuff.
0: Wow that's amazing I I mean your story is really inspiring I know you you seem to to really lend the impression that a lot of it has been serendipity but um, being able to capitalize and being willing and interested to to tell the story and 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 not take the easy bait like you said the salacious stories and really go for something meaningful uh it says a lot about who you are as a person and i'm sure people tell you that all the time but allow us to add to that chorus of voices um marco this has been a wonderful conversation thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us if you ever find yourself back in philly or dc you'll have to let us know um we actually do our own national treasure tour of DC, which we would love to give you at some point, um, but you could probably tell us all the things that we should be saying on our own tour. Uh, and we of course hope that we could have you back on at oh, some point oh, in the oh, future.
2: I would love to, and I'll let you know if I'm in DC again, cause I was there in 2019, I loved it. I want a tour.
0: Oh. Amazing. Well, we'll, we'll add you to our list and we look forward to making that happen. But for now, thank you again so much for joining us here on National Treasure Hunt today.
2: Thank
0: you. Wow. That was incredible.
1: That was so fascinating.
0: In, in a weird way. I know we're focused on national treasure and everything we learned about national treasure was amazing. But like, I just want to keep talking to him about all of his other work with cage, you know?
1: Yeah. Cause like the, the range he had to have to do all that other stuff as well is insane.
0: Absolutely. I couldn't have said it better. I don't know about you, but one of the things that really stood out to me in the tone throughout our conversation was just how grateful he is to Nick Cage for the opportunities that he provided to him. Um, I find that really endearing, actually, and just like a mark of a good human, you know? <laughs> yeah,
1: for sure. <laughs> um, I would have to say that my favorite thing was, and this is like less serious, but the Part about him not shoveling snow correctly on the set of the
0: Charlotte. <laughs> and t- Turtle top getting and then Turtletop getting mad at him for that and like not knowing how to use a computer and Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Those are the sorts of onset stories like you know, we talk a lot about when we do these interviews with like crew members, the unknown unknowns. We would never know to ask about that. Oh
1: no. Because like no, you just how assume would- you know somebody's shoveled snow in the correct way, like yeah, you but... don't you don't give a second thought to that, you know but clearly, there's a directorial vision,
0: yeah, it makes me very nervous for when we one day end up on a John Turtletop set, <laughs> potentially as extras, and he'll be like, "What are you doing? You're not standing right. <laughs> you yeah. don't look dead enough." <laughs> I thought we you could... were
1: talking to me. No.
0: <laughs> he told us we could be dead bodies and I'm just imagining we'd have to look deader. <laughs> More yeah. dead. Yeah. Anyway, um, thank you so much to Marco again for joining us for this conversation. Uh, we hope this isn't the last conversation we have with him.
1: Yeah, hopefully we get to talk to him again. And until then... You can go ahead and find us on Twitter and Instagram at nthuntpodcast. And don't forget to order our book and join our Patreon.
0: As you know, we have more content coming your way for Season 7 of National Treasure Hunt. But until then, I'm Aubrey. And I'm Emily. And thank you so much for joining us on our National Treasure Hunt.